Welcome to episode two of our Chapel podcast series, Fruit of the Spirit. This week's fruit is love, brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Jamie Smith. Some years ago, uh, I was a full-time professor in the USA and I had a lot of admin duties and I was teaching literally 12 classes a year. And I had also at the same time the responsibility of regenerating a church that was about to close. They had hired a fellow to come in and preach five different sermons and close the doors. And I came in at sermon three to suggest that maybe this place doesn't need to shut down. And at the same time, uh, my wife and I had two young kids and we had just purchased a house Uh, to live intentionally uh, right beside the university where we worked or where I worked. And to be really, really honest, my neighbours were just awful people. Uh, I really, really hated them, actually. And they'd regularly have parties out in the back deck. They were violent people, loud people, messy, uh, lots and lots of uh, negative encounters with these people. Then one time, 3 a.m. in the morning, I was, I guess that's redundant, but at 3 a.m. I was woken up by this another party going on on their back deck and I was thinking, I just, I can't, I can't deal with this anymore. And I walked downstairs and I noticed that my son was up because he also was woken by the loud music and everything. So I finally went outside and I had this big confrontation with these people. Police got involved, lots of threats came my way. It was a real scene, you know, not cool. But It was Saturday night or 3 a.m. in the morning on Saturday. And just a couple of hours later, I'm driving out the driveway, going to church to preach. And this had been my night before. And I just said to my wife, Mandy, I really hate my neighbours. I love my house, but I actually really hate my neighbours. And and I didn't think anything of this. And then literally she turned to me and said, are you sure you've got that the right way around? And I thought, oh, you know, if there's one thing I really like is when someone actually reminds me of my own theology when I'm busy feeling sorry for myself. It's not a particularly fun thing, really. Anyway, um, how do you love people like that? I mean, they're pretty hard people to love, to be honest. So here's our text today. Beloved, let's love one another. Love's from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. So, okay, we get this, right? We've heard it a million times. We're supposed to love one another. I mean, that's not news to anybody who's listening here right now. And John also adds to that, that we're not only supposed to love each other, that he also says, The one who does not love doesn't know God, right? Now, that's a problem, partly because it's really, really hard. It's a hard saying, but also partly a problem because it sounds really vague. There's nothing like, I guess, uh, you being given an ultimatum about something that's super, super important, but not really understanding what the ultimatum is actually about, So the question I want to ask here is, what is this love that John's talking about? He actually goes on to answer the next sentence. He says, this is how the, I'm going to, this is verse nine, and I'm going to paraphrase for clarity. This is how the love of God was shown among us, namely that 
God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, when we're reading this, our eye goes rightly to the purpose clause at the end of the sentence, the phrase, the clause that says, so that we might live in him or through him. But we can't really go there just yet because we've got to deal with this other question, uh, what John might mean by the love of God. So the grammar here helps us clarify a little bit Essentially, we want to think about this as the God kind of love, not just love generically, but a particular kind of love, a unique love for which God is the only source. Now, it's easy to get distracted by what counts as love in our lives and culture, right? And all we know, you know everybody knows and understands that uh, love has a broad semantic range, means lots of different things. And people are always saying, hey, love has lots of words in Greek or something like this. Um, and it's hard to pin down. And it's particularly easy for our culture to process love as something that we consume. And I think that's the main way we think about love. What can I get out of love? And we define love through that consumerist mentality. Sometimes these distractions aren't even actually bad versions of love, right? Like, for example, a parent may love a child, but even this kind of love can go bad when that love is not guided by the kind of love that comes from God, the God kind of love. So, for example, in the name of love, some parents avoid disciplining their children. And in the name of love, some parents protect their children from all the consequences of their reactions, of their actions, only to raise horrible little hell people who can't deal with life and are really difficult to get along with and all that kind of stuff. But for John, there is a love that is inherent to the nature of God, so much so that he then says, God is love. So love is not something other than God or something that God has, love is something that's integral to the feature of what it means to be God, integral into God's divine nature. And in as much as that is true then, love is a part of the creation of the world as well. The world has that God created will have a natural place for God and also for the love of God, for the God kind of love. And the world will have a natural longing for the unique kind of love that comes from God. But without a knowledge of God, the world can only approximate the love that it seeks. And the unfortunate reality is that it ends up normalizing corrupt views of love. So God's nature contains the true, pure, ideal kind of love. And John says that this divine love was shown to us most clearly in the story of Jesus. You know, the divine son gives up his heavenly state to take on the frailty and mortality of human flesh to then suffer and die. And now we get to the purpose clause eventually so that we might live through him. Okay. So God shows us that love is within him by sending the son to die for us so that we might have life. So this helps us get some sense of what John means when he talks about God is love and we must love, otherwise we don't know God. Particularly love defined as sacrifice. Yeah, that's a pretty common thing. But when we want to get a bit deeper, we kind of want to think through this purpose clause 
And the purpose clause again is this phrase, uh, so that we might live through him. And I want to ask the question, so if we can sort of narrow down love a little bit and sort of say, oh, it's roughly sacrifice, let's get to this live part so that we might live through him. So then we have to ask, what is the life that we are meant to then live? Now, the first idea of what it means, or I should say the firstly, the idea of what it means to live in this particular text is probably as vague as what it means to love in as much as it has a wide range of meanings and all this kind of stuff. And it'll be very, very easy for us to settle on the idea that John is just saying, God loves us and sent his son to die so that we can be saved and have eternal life. And that's nice. But this ends up in a classic Christian trap of radically separating our present life from our eternal life. And there's a certain effectiveness to that, specifically when we're thinking about things like suffering. We want to keep suffering out of our eternal lives, but that would be to misunderstand what's going on here. These lives, the, rea well, the reality is between our eternal life and the world life we're currently living, these lives are already joined anyway. We are already spiritual beings, and it's just that we are also mortal beings. So the task is now, to, to allow the internal that we already have to inform the living out of the mortal that is so present to our daily reality. So there's a lot more going on in this clause so that we might live than what happens after we die. It includes that life, right? So that we might live includes the life that we have after we die. But the immediate reality is that God sent his son so that we might live now in this life. So what kind of life is it that we lead now when it is enabled by the love of God manifested in the story of Jesus? The life John says we might have is one for which the love of God is both the source and the force. I, I thought I'd say that because I'm not normally a preacher, but here you go. Here's a little bit of a rhyming situation. You can all have that. I also Googled it. No one's used it, so it's yours. Anyway, I'll hear Paul preaching this next week at church, I'm sure. Anyway, um, when I say that for John, the love of God is the source of life, I mean that God as creator is a source of pure and true love in as much as it is actually a part of his nature, as we've mentioned earlier. And whatever God does is motivated by and imbued with that love feature of his nature. For John, there can be no love without God. And importantly, all things that are called love in our world must be governed and measured by the character of God, since God is himself love, the source of love, and without whom there is no love. And when I say that for John, the love of God is the force of life, I mean that the kind of love John has, that John's talking about here, is describing not a passive, accidental, wait until it happens kind of love, rather as demonstrated by God's own actions, we're talk, John is talking about the kind of love that exists within God is the kind of love that intentionally engages the world. So when love is a force in our lives, like it is in God's life, 
It's what motivates us to actually act and to actually engage intentionally, purposefully in material ways that have a real effect on the world and not just an abstract concept. And by this process, we bring God's love to completion in the world. So one, God shows us his love by sending his son to die so that we might live. And two, by live, John means that God's love brings his eternal presence into our lives in which we now live and act and we materialize, that is bring into material form, we materialize and complete that presence through an intentional and purposeful engagement with each other and the world. This is the loving one another. So help us think about this a bit more. I want to go back to an earlier verse, verse 8, where it says, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So based on what John says, it's not the case that anyone can say, you know, just some rando walking around says, I love, therefore I know God. That's not what John's saying. It's rather the case that for John, knowing God is only possible when one loves with the kind of love that emanates from God's character and being. And this is only possible when one lives within the story of God's love, namely the story of Jesus. So that is, knowing God is not just an awareness of some facts about a divine being. Knowing God is a life lived and formed by the presence of a God expressed in love. So moving on to the end of our text then, in verse 12, John makes a surprising comment. And, you know, that is, I mean, it's not surprising because it's already there. It's been there for 2,000 years. But if we're following through the logic of, of John's text, it seems out of step with what's going on. He says... No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You know, I'm interested in that first part, but we'll say we can appreciate the idea that there's some nice stuff inside the idea that God lives in us and that his love is perfected in us. That's, that's interesting. But why? This is the better question, I think. Why does John stop to note no one has seen God at any time? And this has perplexed commentators for a long time. Like, why is he taking this detour? What's it mean? There's an assumption that he actually might have put it out of place because he meant to put it later and all sorts of other things. Now, um, I think that there's a good reason for this. And there's an analog in John's gospel to which we can go and sort of help us work through what's going on here. In John's gospel, in verse chapter 1, verse 18, John writes, no one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son, who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. Or some texts say, who has explained him. Now, that's a nice clue to, in the gospel there to what's going on here in the letter. right? So in the gospel, John's point is simply that while no one has actually ever seen the father, we nevertheless have the son. And the son has seen the father. And therefore, the son explains the father. So we and John can know God because we know who Jesus is. And as I say, I think this is a clue to why John keep, includes this in his letter. 
So this perhaps brings us to the most critical point that John makes. If we participate in the story of God's love, and then through that love, we are able to love one another. We're talking about that God kind of love. We then become for the world a demonstration of who God is. Or rather, if our love comes from God, it's the God kind, then the world can know who God is because they can see God in our love. And this is a comment that John makes in multiple occasions throughout his writings. It all sounds very simple though, right? Okay, all we've got to do is love each other. So why is it so hard? You know, love's kind of nice and all that. Um, makes us feel good, but again, again, that was probably the consumerist idea. Why is it so common for us to think and process the love of God as a commodity? You know, which is how our, you know, the way we normally do it. We can we tend to think about God's love as something we get for ourselves, as a as a something we consume, as I say. And this actually ends up meaning that we don't really know God anyway, because we're processing the whole love of God through what we get out of it only. But I do think it's a function of self-preservation. That is, why is it so difficult to love people the way God loves us or loves the world? I think self-preservation is a part of it, right? The God kind of love is typically understood, and I think correctly, in terms of sacrifice. That is, we think of divine love as surrendering our interests for the sake of others. That's all good. Moreover, it's absolutely the case that when we take on divine love and surrender our interests and intentionally engage the world around us with that love, it will absolutely be uncomfortable for us. And at times, it's going to feel like a death. And that just doesn't sound like a super fun time. So as a result, I think we instinctively reflect back to something that's a little bit more easy to digest. And this would be just to process love and think about God's love the way the world likes to think about love. Again, as something we consume that benefits us, not something that requires something from us. But sacrifice is not the only part of Jesus' story, right? There's a richness of joy and flourishing around the story of Jesus. Jesus is able to sacrifice because he has the full eternal picture of the goodness and the beauty of God's presence and being. So yeah, if the story of God's love was only about death, then we'd have something to worry about. And while loving with God's love includes a thousand little deaths, there are deaths to the, these are those deaths to things that actually get in the way of life, right? They're deaths to things that can prevent us from flourishing in the presence of God, both now in our life and forever. So the challenges, the shame, the deaths we encounter when we open up ourselves to live out God's life, when we make ourselves that vulnerable, these deaths end up being the means by which we ourselves grow and stretch to begin to more fully live and love the way God loves us. And so I go back to my neighbours all those years ago where they were hassling me with their violence and shooting their guns and all that sort of stuff. But what I failed to do was understand that my difficulty in loving them was actually a way in which God was revealing to me something about my own life 
the way I needed to grow. I mentioned to you how busy I was. My life was really just focused on accomplishment and resolving problems. It wasn't about what's God doing for me in my life? How can I grow or anything like that? And it crowded out any room that I had to get, allow God to show me my inadequacies. So I wasn't able to love because I wasn't able to, I was in, wasn't in a place where I could have the kind of vulnerability that allowed me to, to realize my own inadequacies and places I need to grow. Now, put it to you, isn't it possible that people in your life or situations in your life or groups in your life that are the hardest to love are actually God's love for you, putting you in that context where you need to grow because it is a challenge. Is it possible that this is, that this difficulty in loving someone is actually an invitation for you to let God's love be the source of a renewed and flourishing life for you? This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.